0: Authenticity is not being who you are. That's lame. Authenticity is having the courage to show the world who you wish you were.
1: Welcome to Helium Podcast, Episode 13. We believe researchers should be able to focus their minds on building new knowledge and simplify everything else. I'm Christine Ogilvie-Hendron.
2: And I'm Matt Hoetze.
1: And we're your hosts for Helium Podcast. If there's a topic or a guest you'd like us to cover, always feel free to email matt at teamhelium.co and christine at teamhelium.co to share your part of the conversation. We've already had a couple of episodes that were the ideas of people who were listening. So send them our way if you have them and we will definitely use them to help plan something
2: for all of us to enjoy. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys. And today's episode, I think, might generate some more emails from our audience. Uh, Today is the second part of our talk with Professor Tom Seeger. Tom is the Lincoln Fellow of Ethics and Sustainability and Associate Professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment at Arizona State University. When we edit these, I listened to these episodes multiple, multiple times, and it, it felt like this episode kept getting better every time I listened back to it. So I I think there are a lot of great insights in this episode and it's worth your time to listen for the next 25 minutes to what Tom has to say about your future career as an academic.
1: And in true Tom fashion, this second half of our conversation also spanned scales from the day-to-day practical um, all the way up to broad visions of defining personal metrics for success and the fundamental purposes behind research, engineering, and the personal growth and mentoring needed to reach our potential.
2: So without further delay, enjoy part two of our conversation with Tom Seeger
1: you talk with great enthusiasm about a particular aspect of mentorship that I think is really important and speaks to something that grad students and postdocs speak up about a lot, which is that they want to be seen as a whole person. Um, And you, I know, mentor students with a recognition that, They are that whole individual, and they should be working on their own personal development as a part of their development as a scholar. So could you just talk about how that came to be important to you and what uh, approaches you recommend for faculty to do that type of support for their groups that they work with?
0: I'm glad you're bringing this up uh, because it's a really touchy issue. Um, I have my approach, but I'm not advocating for my approach as the answer for everyone. I'm going to talk a little bit about one of my mentoring relationships. I had a wonderful mentor as a doctoral student. You know Tom Tice. And Tom always treated me like a person rather than as an instrument to advancing his own intellectual agenda. That was very helpful to me. But mentors have continued to be important since I graduated. And a few years ago, I was on the phone with one of the mentors whom I hold dear now, and he said, Tom, your success is going to be capped by your ability to regulate your negative emotion. And I kind of wrote that down, and I said, what are you talking about? He said, for you to continue to grow, you need to be doing the things that scare you. If you are doing the things you already know how to do, then you're not going to grow, and he brought a flashback of the last year of my doctoral study. I was doing this dissertation on thermodynamic measures of environmental impact, and I was going deeper and deeper into trying to understand what entropy was. And six months before I defended, I kind of had this confidence crisis. I don't know a thing about entropy. I used to be able to solve these undergraduate thermodynamics problems, and now I have no idea what entropy really is. Well. That's because there's something like 27 different accepted definitions in the scholarly literature. I mean, it is a confusing concept. And at that moment, I felt I sort of gave over to this nihilistic, like, I don't know anything. Uh, And (laughs) the students who find themselves at that moment are probably on the cusp of graduating just like I was. The anxiety is indicative of me working outside my comfort zone, me grappling with things that I don't understand and feeling the risk of failure and humiliation and criticism that comes with that. So my new mentor, he says, your success will be capped by your ability to regulate your negative emotions. And what are the negative emotions? They're fear and anxiety for the most part. I mean, there might be others, anger, sadness, but, Um, When we're aspiring to do things that have never been done before, it makes us anxious and we become vulnerable to criticism of which we're legitimately afraid. Every doctoral student doing anything interesting is going to experience those negative emotions. To whom will they turn? Well, naturally, they're doctoral advisors, and I recommend you have more than one. Now, some people, particularly in engineering, are going to be like, I don't want to deal with my advisee emotions. Our campus has a whole counseling center for that. I will simply write them a referral, and they can go talk to a professional. And I can understand the temptation to to duck out, to abdicate any responsibility for this dimension of the advisee's well-being and the challenge that comes with it. But my, my mentor saying if they're incapable of regulating or transforming those negative emotions into motivation and into creativity, then the intellectual side of their career is going to suffer. They will become less successful. So what I'm doing for my advisees, I can't tell them, you know, I can't give them instructions in this regard, just like I can't tell them what dissertation to write. I can't give them the checklist to regulation and transformation of your negative emotion. But what I can say is when I was in grad school, six months before I defended, I was convinced I didn't know a damn thing about entropy. And you feeling these feelings that you have right now, that's consistent with someone who's on the right track. I can offer them my experience. I can offer them whatever wisdom that I've gathered. And hopefully, Validate that what they're feeling, what, uh, it might be imposter syndrome, for example, is a normal part of becoming a PhD. Hopefully they, I can also connect them to other students who are either a little further down the road because you need mentors at all different career stages, uh, peers or their own protege, students that are a couple of years behind them that help them organize their experiences into a story that makes sense. So uh, my approach to mentoring is that mentoring is a personal relationship. You can advise a student on what classes to take or what journals to submit to, and some of us are, are unfortunate. When I say us, I mean there are some students who really just have advisors to work with. They don't have mentors, but mentors are people who are willing to be vulnerable about their own experiences, about their own negative emotions, and willing to create within that their own, by showing their own vulnerability, helping others work on their personal development as well as their professional. It's something that Tice did very well for me and something that I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of trying to do for my students.
2: That's wonderful. I think that you know thinking about the difference between and i've tried to articulate this to people before but thinking about the difference between an advisor and a mentor an advisor is just is just a kind of a role that you that you have to play because that's what's in the organized organizational chart but a mentor is something where you're t- you're taking on a lot more responsibility and I, I like to distinguish between those two terms because i think a lot of people just feel like oh it's just an it's almost like an org chart thing. Like I'm just, I'm just the advisor and really there's a lot more to it. And I'm grateful that our audience, when we, when we first interviewed them, like we did a series of interviews before this podcast even started, that was one of the top things that they talked about as being like, I received no training in this. All I had to do was all I had to go off of was what was given to me as an example and I know that I can be doing this better, so i I don't really have a question here, except for just kind of validate what you're what you're saying in terms of mentorship and i think I think people do want to go deeper. It's just sometimes they either get distracted or they or they don't know what's what step to take next with people and so is are there do you have some experiences where you where you felt like you grew as a mentor like there was particular moments in time you don't obviously have to get into specifics but were there particular moment moments of time where you've tapped into a resource or you learned something you had kind of a aha moment in terms of mentoring
0: um some of my uh greatest growth experiences as a mentor have come in response to the most serious criticisms that my mentees levy at me, something that isn't working that I really have to rethink. And that doesn't mean that the mentees are always right uh, because sometimes a criticism will come with a recommendation. And unfortunately um, the, the mentee, the protege is not an expert. In, in what's gonna fix whatever the, the problem or the challenge is, but they're pretty good at identifying things that aren't working. I recently read a book called The Secret of Our Success. I think it's, uh, written by, uh, a Harvard University faculty member of anthropology. But in any case, it's along its anthropological, sociological line. And it's talking about, not the success of the university, but the success of Homo sapiens as a race. How did we come to be so populous and so dominant? Because the way that human beings are wired to learn, it's not the only way, but one of the most important ways that we're wired to learn is by imitating prestigious models. We have these modes of cultural learning where even very young children, two or less, will identify those people in their sensory experience who are worthy of imitation and then they will learn just by imitating those prestigious models. Well, since we're hardwired to learn this way and it happens very naturally, of course, we see it all over the place. Technologies confuse our our hardwired biology. And then the next thing you know, we think we have some kind of personal relationship with Kim Kardashian because we follow her on Instagram or something. We we don't. Our eyes and our ears might make us think that we have a relationship with that celebrity. And they're certainly prestigious. And so we start buying the things that she buys or eating the things. If Matt Damon does it, then it must be good for me too. Because this is some basal part of our brain that says, do it that way. If you don't, you might not survive. Which berries are good to eat? Oh, the ones that I see my parents or the older children in my village eat. Uh, Where are the good places to fish? These kinds of things. When we get to grad school, the same kind of learning applies. Who are the prestigious models that we're going to imitate as an experiment, if nothing else, and see if what works for them also works for us. Now, there are other ways of learning, this sort of more cognitive way of running a structured experiment. Science didn't show up in the human race until very recently, and science is a lot of work to say, I'll try this way, I'll try this way, I'll try this way, I will monitor the results and I'll see what works for me, because there is no perfect translation of what works for one person to working for another. But one of the roles of mentors, and part of the reason I say you should have multiple mentors in your life, is you see what they do. You pick mentors that you admire who are further along an analogous road and ask yourself, ask them, what is working? And then try it as an experiment in your life. So I have a rule with uh, my current most important mentor. Every word of advice that he gives me, I try. But there's a big difference between trying advice and taking advice. If he says, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, think of one. He says, Tom, you should, and we've got to be very careful about the word should, but I write this stuff down. Um, you should uh, open up a Facebook page where you share your thoughts uh, and these articles or whatever it is with an audience that's out there. on the. Uh, next thing you know, I'm going to open up a Facebook page. Turns out that's not the right platform for me. I mean, I try it, but I'm having a lot more success on Medium.com than I am on Facebook. His advice is in the right direction. I try the advice, and I see if the advice works. And if it doesn't work, I discard it. It doesn't hurt his feelings, and I move. Maybe I'll learn something, and I move to something else. So this idea that we learn from prestigious models means that we have to pick the prestigious models whom we admire, but we don't want to give up on this uh, sort of layer form of learning, this kind of neocortex cognitive, we're going to blend the prestigious model imitation form of learning with the science form of learning, of choosing our experiments by watching our prestigious models and then responding to our own feedback, like what works for us in this sort of cognitive way of self-evaluation.
1: I mean, I really love that combination of Realizing we're standing on the shoulders of giants, but also that we need to understand really what resonates with us authentically and how to find our own compass, which has been actually a theme throughout a couple of different episodes we've done. And I I love your take on how to do that. If you don't mind, I think we will... Uh, go here to a thing that we've been trying to do with everybody that is a faculty member that we talk to, to just do a light speed round at the end to just throw a few things at you and get your hot take on what your response is. Does that I work? I want to
0: talk, no, not yet. I want to talk a little bit about this authenticity thing. Um, because Love I it. had, a, uh, I remember I was in Boston about three years ago and I was given an invited talk and I had kind of an authenticity crisis. Like, what is authenticity? And, you know, Getlag might have had something to do with it because Boston at the time was three time zones away from where I am. And I hadn't yet prepared the slides that I want to have. And I came to this realization. Yeah, I um, made a phone call. I had a conversation. And the realization is authenticity is not being who you are. That's lame authenticity is having the courage to show the world who you wish you were. Because if you, if you're saying like, well, I'm being authentic, you know, you can be Popeye. I am what I am. It's very difficult to, it's a defense mechanism. People can criticize you for who you are, but then you get to say like Popeye, well, this is me. If you show the person that you are not, but you aspire to be the person that you wish you were, then you open yourself up to the criticism of the rest of the world. Like, oh, you want to be that? And it brings us back to like that fifth, that sixth grade feeling of once we show the world what we like or what we want, to like, ooh, you like G.I. Joe or whatever. You still want happy days? No. You can be criticized because you've shown the world the person that you wish you were authenticity is not who you are, which is not a courageous act. I mean, it could be, but it's not as courageous as showing the world and and behaving in such a way that you're like, I want to be this person, and I'm going to do the thing that the person whom I wish I was would do. In a way, it feels like you're lying. And this is the crisis that I had about authenticity. I'm not that person. If I'm going to be authentic, then I have to be who I am. No, you don't. The authenticity is in showing the world who you wish you were. And that's, that takes a lot more guts.
2: Yeah, it really does. Yeah. I've heard that structure before. I think it's a really interesting way of viewing things because you, you basically, somebody said, They, they, I I don't know who this is attributed to, but there's this whole structure of do be have. Yeah. So a lot of times what people, what people do is they look and they say, well, that person has this nice career and they have this and they have that and they, they go after what they have, but the, you actually have to step back and say, you have to do what you would do to be that person first, and then you can have the result. And a lot of times people get that backwards. So it's the do be have progression that is just, it's, it can, it can really alter your results in terms of what you, what you're trying to expect out of your life. And so I just thought of that when you were talking.
0: There's a really good reason that people get it backwards. Um, we get a lot of color glossy magazine advice about goal setting. You got to have goals. You got to focus on your goals. You got to be motivated, your goals, never give up on your goals and have goals. Bill Walsh wrote a book. Uh, Bill Walsh coached in the NFL, and he also coached at Stanford. He's got some experience with university culture. So I read his book, and I can't remember the name of it, but I remember this quote. Nothing is less important, he said, than the score at halftime. He was committed to the process, to the verbs that he felt were the right things to do. He's like, the score takes care of itself. I believe that's the name of the book. The, of course, the goal is to win the game, you know, but you can't win the game by watching the scoreboard. You win the game by executing the plays. And football, in this case, I'm using it as a metaphor. Well, your goal might be tenure or faculty job or something like that, but you don't, like, achieve your goal by watching your metaphoricals, by watching your citations on Scholar Google. You achieve your goal by writing the article by reviewing other people's papers so you have a sense of what's happening in your field before it's even published, by writing new proposals, by giving talks, by being receptive to feedback, by sharpening your message. It's the verbs that require our attention, not the nouns that we want to accumulate.
1: That's fantastic. I really, in a number of your written pieces, have resonated with the idea of using language analogies for where to put our energy making things into a verb you know what are you gonna actually do what decide mm-hmm. and put yourself into because of how you're seeing these priorities that's the much more important assessment than the scoreboard um, I uh, I'm I'm so grateful that you've given us so much of your time and I if you're up for it I'd love to invite you back for a future episode uh, to just kind of Future scape.
2: Great. I think we can split this episode into two parts. Maybe let's move into the lightning round. Now, Christine, would you like to go first? What's your favorite part of your job?
0: The people that I get to help. Um, I'm, uh, wired in a way that I don't want to change your question anymore. I get this thrill from watching people grow. And, uh, Seth Godin put it in an interesting way. He's got this, uh, video on leadership versus management. And he says that what he, what gives him joy is watching people grow, not in an incremental way, but in a quantum way. And I can no longer help myself. I'm going to go around and I'm going to challenge my students, whether they're undergraduate or they're graduate. I'm going to challenge my colleagues who already have tenure because what gets me up in the morning, makes me feel like a kid on Christmas morning, is watching other people grow into those challenges. It's the te- it's funny you said the be, do, have. Um, teaching is not something that I do. It's something that I am. And I've stopped questioning that uh, about myself. So my favorite part of the job is that it gives me A stream of people who are saying, uh, I'm here to learn and it gives me an opportunity to do what I love, which is teach.
2: So here's the next question. What's a common mistake that you see people making in their research careers that limits their potential?
0: Here's the thing that I think is missing from most people doing research. They don't understand the problem that they're trying to solve. They understand the solution, and particularly in engineering, we get so enamored of our solutions that we forget that the solution and the problem have to come together. So if I'm talking with somebody who's very excited about their technology or their science or whatever it is, I might say, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? And instead of giving me this, like, well-formulated challenge or opportunity, they'll say, uh, but, you know, this structure is bubble." And I'd be like, okay, nanobubbles are great. Um, what problem does nanobubbles solve? And they'd be like, but you don't understand. I've got nanobubbles.
1: Uh. <laughs> 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 now you're speaking my language. Right?
0: <laughs> Scientists get to do that. Scientists get to say, Tom, I'm not interested in problem solving. I just sort of count all the raindrops. And I say, look, here's a new way of counting the raindrops. And that's wonderful. But engineers say, okay, that's how many raindrops we have. How many raindrops should we have? It's this normative idea of changing the world. Engineers are problem solvers and many people will go and become so enamored or preoccupied of their solutions that they've lost track of the problem that they're trying to solve.
1: That reminds me of some uh, things that I've talked about in our center, which is multidisciplinary and has a lot of Natural scientists and engineers, among other folks, and I have often talked about how there's, you know, a descriptive side and a prescriptive side, and we're learning each other's methods and trying to tie up together. How do you even ask questions? So that's a that's a really fantastic one, and we can always do better at asking questions. I guess for it's not an unrelated question. Our next thing on the light speed round is uh, what is the needle that you most want to move when all is said and done with your body of work?
0: I want to change the way that people make sense of the world. I want to move it from simplistic to complex. And I'm going to tell a story about my daughter that uh, is an example that I hope your audience can relate to. My daughter, um, she's now a senior at Arizona State, and she's a digital culture major. She was taking a class last year called, like, modern folklore. I don't really know. Medieval modern fiction or something like, I'm like, that's not even a class. You know, I'm an engineer and I'm like, what, how can that even, and she gets into the middle of this class. She says, dad, I really like it. She kind of defends it a little bit. And so one day she says, dad, you know, Harry Potter. I'm like, of course, good versus evil. She says, you know, star Wars. Well, of course, good versus evil. She goes, you know, Lord of the Rings. Of course. Good versus evil. I like, what's your point, Emma? She says, well, I've been watching Game of Thrones. And she goes, I can't tell. I can't tell who the good guys are and who the evil guys are. I mean, I know that there's like the the, the backdrop of the evil threat. But once I identify a character, and I'm like, oh, they're evil. Yeah, but they really care about their kids. You know, they'll have some kind of complex moral position that means I cannot pigeonhole the character's in Game of Thrones the same way that I can pigeonhole them in all of these other popular sort of fictional works. I go, she says, it's really interesting. She's found a more complex way of making sense of the world than these sort of teenage fantasy fiction um, stories would present to her. I want to move people from right, wrong, good, bad, black, white, to this more complex way of making sense of the world. Typically, you start engineering school, you're in calculus, you're in physics, you're in chemistry, and you work a lot of problems. And the answers to all of the odd problems are listed at the back of the book, and they're either right or wrong. But that's just not the way the world works. There is no right and wrong. There's better or worse. There's more or less successful. So as a college freshman, you make sense of the world in a certain way. By the time you're a graduate student, I'd like to help people make sense of the world in more complex
2: ways. That, I think that that is a perfect way to wrap up our show. I think, uh, what was that vampire book that Twilight? was so popular? Twilight. So I think you were, you're were you thinking in your analogy, you're moving people from Twilight to Game of Thrones or even more complex <laughs> Because you mentioned teenage romance novels, and that, that's what I was thinking about—is Twilight. Although I couldn't think of it, it anyway.
0: Amazing what a tenured professor can learn from a teenage daughter. Yeah.
2: Yes, I think our kids are. It's a. It's amazing. Just even a, even my five year old teaches mm-hmm. me so much. Just about just looking at the world in a different way.
1: Just back to that complexity, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. And and we, we might be able to edit this into two episodes. You're right. But uh also, we might invite you back just to talk about the future of universities. I think that's a fascinating subject. And we could spend the entire podcast on that. I'd be so delighted you, to come
0: back. Yes. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Christine. It's been a pleasure.
2: You've been listening to episode 13 of Helium Podcast. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co. The music for our episode was provided by Michael Blake, and he can be found at mblakemusic.com. The show is produced and edited by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and Matt Hotze. We want to thank you for being a listener to the Helium Podcast please press subscribe so you don't miss any of our awesome upcoming episodes. In fact, in episode 14, our next episode, we'll be talking with the folks from Beyond Prof about mentoring students who want careers outside of academia. So don't miss that one coming up in two weeks. Take care and we'll talk to you later.